This is episode 306 of The Amy Ayler Show. Show notes can be found at amyaylorshow.com forward slash 306. Today's show is all about stepping into your moxie, and I have an awesome guest for us today, the amazing Alexia Vernon. Alexia is the author of Step Into Your Moxie, branded a moxie maven by President Obama's White House Office of Public Engagement. She is a sought-after speaking and leadership coach who delivers transformational keynotes and corporate trainings for Fortune 500 companies and other professional groups and organizations, including the United Nations and TEDx. Alexia holds graduate and undergraduate degrees in women's studies and has been featured on CNN, NBC, ABC, and CBS, and in publications like Forbes Women, Women's Health, and the European Business Review. You can check out her website at alexiavernon.com. Check out this show. You are going to love it. Alexia, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. Yes. Well, okay. So we've got to talk about the word moxie. I feel like there's something like so spunky and spicy and amazing about the word moxie. And I'm curious for you, knowing that you have been branded the moxie maven and it's part of your book and everything that's happening. Tell me a little bit more about what that word means to you and and what the context is that had you choose that specific word. Yes. I love the word moxie for the reasons that you mentioned. It's playful. There's something about it that feels disruptive in a respectful way. (laughs) When I think of the phrase, step into your moxie, to me, it embodies having the mindset and the corresponding skill set to be able to walk into any room or onto any stage and unapologetically speak up for yourself for other people, for the ideas and issues that matter most to you, and know that when you speak, you are calling people to take action on what you have said. I love that. I love that. I love the blend of confidence and calling people into action. Yes. If there's one thing that could be on my tombstone, and hopefully it doesn't have to be on my tombstone, (laughs) Yes. It would be, she gave women moxie or she gave women confidence and showed them how to be persuasive because that to me is what is missing for so many women is that ability that it's not confidence for confidence sake, but it's really using our voices to be able to move people into something, to do something, to think a different way. So is this like just a natural skill set that you were born with? Is the, <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> I guess not. I guess not. Right. I, oh, that's right. You're a woman. I forgot for a second. Right. It's like, I don't know. I always say to people, my books are love letters to women that are hard on themselves and they go hard on themselves. Oh, you mean like every single woman? I'm like, yes, pretty much every single woman, every single woman. I subscribe to the belief that we teach, speak, coach on what we have learned and what we need to remember. Yeah. I'm not somebody who came into the world with buckets of moxie uh, for I'm an introvert and um, beyond not being comfortable with visibility because it's not how I'm wired for a long time. I had really a debilitating fear of public speaking Mm. and I can trace the beginning of that discomfort back to elementary school, third or fourth grade. 
I'd been sucking my thumb since the moment I was born. So by the time I was in grade school, I had a hellacious overbite and all kinds of other problems in my mouth. And my mom and my orthodontist discussed the situation and decided that they wanted to take the aggressive route. So over the course of a few weeks, I got a lot of things in my mouth. So for example, I had a tongue thrust, meaning when I would speak, my tongue would come forward. So I got this little device that had these spikes to cut my tongue, to train it to stay in the back of my mouth. Oh my gosh, honey, that sounds horrible. And that was only step one. I also did all the thumb sucking, had a really shallow palate. So I got this other device that went into my upper palate that had a spot for a key. And I would turn that key a couple of times a day to bring my jaw back into alignment. Braces. And I thought it would be super duper cool to match the rubber bands on my braces with my glasses. So I was rocking a lot of turquoise between my mouth and my forehead for a number of years. (laughs) And last but not least, I had headgear. It's a burlap looking sack that sits on the top of your head that attaches to some more metal accoutrement. So I got this post-apocalyptic makeover right around the same time I had to give my very first speech in front of my class. And even just saying that makes my voice start to quaver. Oh my goodness. How old were you? Third, fourth grade, eight, yeah. nine years old. Oh whatever. my gosh. And I got oh. up in front of my classmates and looked out at a sea of faces and felt that tsunami of sensation in my body that I was totally ill-equipped to deal with. So my hands got clammy, my heart beat quickly. Because of all the orthodontia, I started to drool on myself. And (laughs) I vowed, somehow, I I mean, obviously I survived. I'm here for us for 30 some odd years later, but um, I vowed after that, that I would never put myself in a position where I felt so exposed and simultaneously diminished again. And even though I was a really good student and a perfectionist and even a performer, like I danced, I did theater, I always felt like I was hiding behind the protection of a character, choreography, my own words that I could meticulously sculpt. It took a lot of reprogramming my brain, but also learning how to play nicely with a sensation in my body when I was being visible to change my relationship to my outer voice. So you've used the word visible a lot. And I know, you know, Amplify Your Voice, Visibility and Influence in the World is the subtitle of your book. And I'm curious about what you mean by visibility and also why the hell are women so terrified of this whole visibility thing? Because I know I I find it all the time in the women that I work with too. I say on the, in the first page of the book, and I'm going to paraphrase somewhat because I'm now at that stage where I don't have the book by my side at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a great place to be in. <laughs> I know, right? It's no longer in like the little sling, like you're not carrying it in the kangaroo right? anymore. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but I say something along the lines of for the first quarter of my life, I felt like I was in an on again, off again relationship to my own voice. And I promise this will explain what I mean by visibility in a moment. Yeah. There would be these moments where I felt like I was tap dancing on eggshells, really striving. I would probably use the word hustling to be liked and to give the right answers and not be called out for failing 
to be enough of whomever I conjectured other people wanted me to be. And that's probably not surprising given the story that I shared around my first speech. Mm. However, in other moments that were sometimes in close proximity to those former moments I just described, I had a desire to be seen and to be heard because I knew that I was smart, that I had creative ideas, that I could help people. And yet I didn't have a paradigm that allowed me to reconcile these two parts of who I was. And what I now know from being in the women's empowerment space into different ways for, God, almost two decades, um, is that I'm not alone in this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that women specifically, those who identify as female, For most of us, we have this fear of I'm not enough. If people really knew what was going on, they wouldn't want to hear from me. Riding shotgun next to the realization that I know that I can positively and perhaps really radically improve people's lives, businesses, careers, health, sex lives, whatever we do through our careers or in our businesses. And we're visible when we choose to move through the discomfort and do the work we were called to do while not trying to deny that it's inevitable that we're going to second guess from time to time as we go do the work we're called to do in the world. Yes. Well, hugely. And it's, and I feel like women often think that when those external circumstances change, when they get the raise, when they get the promotion, when they get hit seven figures in their business or six figures or five figures, whatever it is, right? It's like when that happens, then suddenly the moxie is going to show up, so to speak. Then suddenly we're not going to have this fear of visibility. But I, and I'm sure you found this, like, that's just not true. It's a total big fat lie. It's always with us. It's not something that really ever goes away. It's something that we have to practice and work on all the time. Yes. And that's one of the things I love doing because I wound up someone accidentally on the speaking circuit when I was in college. I won the Miss Junior America competition. And what I wasn't prepared for was, oh my goodness, now I'm going to be asked to give all these speeches in front of young people. And even though I figured out how to be able to puff up and perform and do that successfully, I hadn't learned how to change my relationship to what I was feeling inside. And some of that was self-talk but your peeps know all about that (laughs) was like, okay, I'm feeling those that what feels like a colony of butterflies flapping their wings in my stomach. What do I do with that? Right. And, um, it was through recognizing that a lot of the training I'd received as an actor and a dancer that I of course forgot the moment I was suddenly being asked to speak was really applicable here and is applicable for all of us. Like remembering that, what we know from neuroscience is from the moment we have a thought that triggers a feeling. And I don't just mean happy or sad or scared, but rather that physiological feeling, the hands being clammy, feeling like puddles of sweat or pulling out of our armpits, whatever it is, that we're going to be in that experience for 90 seconds. That's just the way we're wired. And then we have the opportunity and I would say responsibility to normalize that for ourselves to say, that means I'm in the game. It means that I'm playing to my edge. I'm doing something big. I'm saying something big so that it's not just about saying things because 
those are the right things to say to ourselves, but it's about being able to be present with that discomfort. Things like if we're about to communicate in a negotiation or a sales conversation or even giving a presentation, particularly for those of us who might be introverts, how do we start quietly and slow? Doesn't mean we're not passionate and we're not present. And then as we start to hear our own voices and feel comfortable with that, then we can start to take up more space with our bodies, have more volume and so forth. I love that. I love thinking about that. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely an extrovert and I feel like people sometimes also think that even if you're an incredibly um, extroverted, very social, that that means that I don't get nervous before I go on stage, or that means I don't get nervous before I go on TV, or that means that I don't get nervous when I go to the parent-teacher night at my daughter's school. And I get nervous in all of those scenarios all the time. And I feel, so I'm curious, like you mentioned that for introverts of starting softly, what about for the extroverts that might be listening? For the extroverts, who might be experiencing some of that stuff that's coming up. Um, When we know that our goal is to move people to take action on our ideas, whether it's one person we're having a conversation with or hundreds or thousands of people that we might be speaking with, being able to ask, and this really is for the introverts too, to be quite honest, but being (laughs) able to ask the question, how can I connect as much as possible to the people I'm seeking to serve right now? How can I Mm. speak to the conversation that's in their head? Yep. So that it's not about, am I smart enough? Am I funny enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I something enough? Mm -hmm. Because that's all ego-based crud. And that's what makes the sensation worse rather than the moment we reorient to how can I love up on the person, the people in front of me right now, speak to their resistance, their objections, suddenly there's no room for self-doubt to emerge because we're in that liminal space between us and them. We're, we're right there and we're present. And whether we say, um, like, you know, or so, or forget where we're going, we will find the answers in being with the person or the people, if that makes sense, rather than in our heads trying to get it right. I love it. One of the things that a speaking coach that I was working with gave to me as a tip and which has helped me so much when I do keynotes is I actually go and introduce myself to people as they're coming into the room or if they're having like a breakfast before the thing, I'll go up and just kind of go around to different tables and thank them for coming, make eye contact, shake some people's hands. I always like to say, I feel like the bride visiting all the different tables right now. But Mm -hmm. it's like, there's this way in which it calms my whole system down because I just recognize they're just people just Mm -hmm. like me, just like you that are just there to hear. I happen to be the one on the stage, but that if we can just make that human connection, it just calms my entire nervous system down. And so that connection, I love that. That connection is so important. Like you said, whether you're also a speaker or a coach or someone that goes on television or you're trying to influence your boss to give you that promotion or to you know to get that raise that you know you deserve. But going in from that space of connection is so key. Yes, Oftentimes I hear from folks, I'm trying to meditate. I'm trying to calm myself down. And I want to be super clear that like, I'm totally down with the meditation and the visualization. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of us, 
the issue is that we're doing too much in inner work and we're not doing enough to connect. We're not doing the outer work. And so I love the suggestion of being able to talk to people in your audience. That's a really good one. And something that I also default to doing more, not just because I want to get to know them, but because it feels self-serving, like it makes me more comfortable. But some of the other things that we can do rather than trying to quiet down is actually get physical. So if you know that you might have an important call that you have to make, do some jumping jacks, or if you have a rebound or a little trampoline next to your desk, like I do, go bounce on it. But actually getting our heart rate up and sweating a little bit is phenomenal because afterwards it allows all the blood to just move through our bodies. And then we usually trick ourselves into getting to a place of calm. When it comes to difficult conversations and daring conversations, and I know that maybe there's someone listening right now that has a conversation they need to have with their teenager or need to have with their boss or need to have with someone that they're managing or need to have with their husband or girlfriend or wife or partner, whatever the case may be, I know that there can be that tendency that we have to rehearse what we're going to say over and over ad nauseum in our brains until our anxiety is through the roof. Mm -hmm. And I know that you have this great chapter in the book, Conflict is the Pits Until It Isn't. Can you just talk a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that? Yes. Uh, Whenever there's a conversation we know we want to have because we are steamier than a boiling teapot about something, there are four options we have available to us. One of those options is we can say nothing. And then usually it feels like, what's what's that expression? Um, you swallow poison and then wonder why your neighbor isn't the one suffering. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Second option is we can say, I'm entitled to say something. So we pick up the phone or we walk into somebody's office or whatever it is, and we just say what we're going to say. Usually that doesn't work out very well because we're being driven by emotion and we haven't thought about how to sculpt what it is that we're going to say so that we make it easy for other people to engage with us. Third option, equally problematic, is we sculpt everything, as you had mentioned. Like we try to plan out every single word. We try to control the situation. And then usually that means we're ruminating. We're replaying it over in our heads to the point where we almost feel paralyzed because we're trying to memorize this script. And there's so many unknowns we simply can't prepare for. Rather than the fourth option, which for whatever reason is not what we default to, and yet it's the one that sets us up for the most success and good feelings, which is speaking aloud what it is that we want to say so that we get comfortable hearing our own voice. And when we're practicing aloud, also practicing the questions that we want to ask to help turn this from a monologue where we're just blurting out at someone into a dialogue where we're both co-creating the solution for how to move forward. Have I know that for me with my daughters having a middle schooler and a preschooler who's going to be going into kindergarten later this year, and I know you have um, your daughter as well who it must be in kindergarten now, yeah? Uh, actually in pre-K, so our daughters are the same age. Oh my gosh, we'll okay. Kindergarten later in that, what year are we? In the fall, yeah, <laughs> fall of 2019, we're going to both have kindergartners. Um Yeah, well, it's so interesting with my middle schooler that this is one of the tools that 
I work on with her too when it comes to friendship drama and all the girl drama, which my daughter takes after me. She's a very social extrovert, which means that she happens to constantly be involved with a lot of drama, I feel like. And so her doing that rehearsing about what she wants to say if a boundary is being crossed or if a girl's being unkind to her or if she screwed up and needs to make an apology, that that rehearsal, like you're saying, and actually saying it out loud has been so powerful for me as a mom and something that she does with her friends as well. Is that something, I mean, obviously with a kindergartner, it's a little bit different, but is that something that you see as a tool for parents to use with their children as well? Absolutely. And even when children are young. So um, when I think about my own journey to Moxie, one of the key moments happened when I was four years old, when I spoke up to both of my parents about being sexually abused by another family member. And I bring this up because, well, first, while I wish I could tell you that that initial act of moxie of speaking up despite being told by the family member who was abusing me that there would be horrible consequences if I did like doing that did not lay the foundation for a lifetime of speaking up and out because not everybody in my family was ready for that difficult information that I shared and there were some folks like my mom who just epitomized what it means to go to hell and back for somebody that you love. And she protected me and she got me the therapy that I needed. But there were other people in my family who just simply didn't know how to be able to support me without turning their back on that other loved one. But yet I didn't know for years why I spoke up because truthfully, it felt very opposite of my wiring. I wasn't somebody who had a lot of confidence for a long time. And then around the time of my daughter's birth, my mom and I were going through old memorabilia and we stumbled upon this article in a photo album that she'd ripped from a parenting magazine. And it was an article that was about how you talk to your children about what constitutes safe touch. Mm. And suddenly she realized that she had been role-playing safe touch conversations with me from the time I could speak. And there's not a doubt in my mind. I spoke up because I had the words to do so and my mom had made me feel safe using them. So from the time my daughter could speak, you bet her dad and I have been role-playing those conversations with her. And, you know, sometimes it's wildly ridiculous because as a result, I mean, I have a five-year-old who knows a lot about male and female bodies. She knows what to say. If someone even in her classroom touches her in a way she doesn't like, I did not give you consent to do that. This is my, you know, like it's somewhat funny if I can even say that around these difficult topics, but we, we know that, um, For our child, who's very similar to me, who's an introvert, who has a really hard time navigating through friendships and some of the mean stuff that can happen because unfortunately kids are so young, they don't know how to say what they want to say without it being hurtful that, oh, we've been really good on the consent and the safe touch conversations, but it's only been very recent that we've realized we need to start helping her role play the things she wants to say to her friend. And we've seen a huge impact on doing that, that suddenly she's able to say, if you don't want to play with me, 
there's a different way you could say that that won't hurt my feelings and giving her opportunities to practice that again and again and again with us where it's safe so that it comes out in the situations that feel more high stakes at school. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I have chills just thinking of you and your mom stumbling across that article and then remembering that role playing and how it really allowed you to be able to speak up and, and process that at such a young age, right? When it sounds like it was occurring, which as we know is really rare. Yes, that, that is so powerful. And I hope all of you that are moms, that are aunties, that are uncles, that are fathers, that are, you know, have little sisters, like anybody that has a little girl in their life and a little boy in their life, that you will use this conversation as inspiration to do that role playing. And I remember my, my oldest daughter too, has been from a very young age, always like, that's my body, that's my body. And then unfortunately, she used it at at scenarios like, it's my body. So I don't have to go to bed right now. You know, like she would, you know, (laughs) yes, exactly. Right. But I was like, that's right. Like, I would much rather have her saying that kind of stuff to me and me being like, well, this is one of those scenarios where mommy and daddy get to decide Mm -hmm. that it is bedtime. But it's, you know, I just, think it's so important. And and I mean, really what you're talking about in a lot of ways is building that moxie in our children and knowing that you're a mom. Is there any other tips or guidelines that you can give for those of us that are parents and have, or have kids in our lives that we love to help them have more moxie? This one I'm stealing (laughs) with love from my daughter's school. Every year they have a theme for their school. And it's so convenient that the theme for the school this year is Brave Voices. Mm. And when we'll ask, when I ask my daughter, what does that mean to you? You know, she knew what my book was about and we talked about it, but there was something about her being able to see that there's lots of different ways to use my brave voice. Like it doesn't have to mean that at five years old, I'm speaking out about politics I don't agree with, (laughs) you know? But using my brave voice might mean telling my teacher that I don't think that my chicken was cooked quite right and I have a tummy ache. Like helping it feel like it's not just something we have this one-off conversation, we check it off a list, but using a term that feels contextually and age appropriate, and then being really serious about the fact that if brave voices is our theme, we talk about how to bring a brave voice to all of the different things that we are confronted with on a daily basis. And to me, that idea of having a theme and having it be age appropriate is something we can start very young, but certainly it can be tweaked by the time our kiddos are in their tweens and when they're older middle schoolers or even high schoolers. Love that. Yes. I know that we're starting to wrap up here, but I, one of the questions that I like to ask all of my guests that are here on the Amy Ayler show is what is messy and what's magical about your life these days? Mm. There's a lot of overlap between both of my answers. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Often is the case. What is messy is that I'm currently living in a rental that is not very spacious with my kiddo, but also with my husband who came into my business full time, which is now our business, a year and a half ago. I'm in the middle of a launch. 
I am surrounded by a lot of copies of my book because it came out a few months ago. So living in a tight space, Mm. trying to make a lot happen sometimes feels messy. Like I'm somebody who likes everything in its proper place. I love to have art on the walls and feeling like I'm doing a lot of big things in a physical space that feels like it's in transition is a little messy, not going to lie. But what's magical is seeing the evolution that's happened in my business over the last five years. When my girl was born, I had horrific postpartum depression. And I knew that despite having wanted to be a mom and having an amazing pregnancy that the first 90 days, I really questioned whether I would be able to create the life that I wanted for myself and for my daughter and for my family, because my husband was traveling for work six days a week. Most weeks, I didn't have childcare sorted and I wanted more than anything to grow my business, which felt so selfish to say, because even though I'd been in it for a while, in many ways, it was a side hustle. My husband was the primary breadwinner. And I remember the day, it was a horrible day of just being on the ground thinking, how am I going to do this? Who am I? Like, I've never known sadness, let alone depression like this, that I made that decision that I can be the mom I want to be and I can be successful in my business. And I'm not going to be one of those success stories who makes everything happen in 90 days or in six months. But two and a half years after that, those roles in our family had switched. Suddenly my business was generating multiple six figures and I had become the primary breadwinner. And having my husband be able to make that decision to leave the company that he was with, join me full time so that we could bring our family life and our work life together. It created the freedom for us to be able to build a business. Like knowing that I was able to do that, not from my highest self, but at a place where I was really questioning things into now, you know, life, it's not like you hit a final destination point, but the things that I had dreamed and now we have dreamed for ourselves, seeing them come to fruition feels really amazing. That is so magical. I'm so happy for you, Alexia. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So with that, everyone, keep stepping into your moxie. Make sure to really feel into those ahas, whether it's about what Alexia shared about really allowing those, like when those butterflies happen, how to really process those so that you can continue to step forward and speak with influence and be able to really bring your points across to the people you're speaking to and really communicate in that way or whether it's with your children or your nieces and nephews about how to really help them with role-playing so they can step into brave conversations and difficult conversations for them and for you. Whatever it is, really take that and take that learning, cement it in, lock it in for yourself and move forward with so much love. And with that, keep embracing the messiness and the magic of life and keep rising and leading. Until next time, bye-bye. 